the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete, had this chant, when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes, you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the topmost of the poppermost. And I say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. I'd say, where are we going, fellas? And they go, to the top, Johnny. I'd say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the topmost of the poppermost. And I'd say, right. And we'd all sort of <laughs> cheer up. Welcome to Toppermost of the Poppermost for June of 1963. I am Ed Chen. I'm Kid O'Toole. And I'm Martin Quibell. Martin is talking this month. We have decreed it. Yes. I've already talked. <laughs> I have spoken. You have spoken. All right. So when we were looking through the charts for this month, June of 1963 was really a crossroads, both for the Beatles and the charts, both in America and in Britain. We kind of came up with a theme of past, present, and future. Which is sort of self-explanatory, really. We start with the past side. Of course, My Bonnie was the record that started it all for the Beatles. It represents their past in terms of their Hamburg connection and the person that kind of helped them break through and gave them their first official recording, Tony Sheridan. Well, and we cannot forget Bert Kampfert, the very definition of past. Yes. <laughs> very true. But that's not all that was going on at that point in time. You look through the charts, a lot of the 50s artists were at least staging a bit of a comeback. Buddy Holly, Roy Orbison, Fats Domino, and the Everly Brothers, among others, that are still present on the charts, still you know making great music. Absolutely. Buddy Holly, posthumously, of course, uh, and the Crickets. They are still impacting the charts. Not to mention Johnny Cash and Elvis himself. Indeed. And Johnny Cash, you're going to have one of his huge classics in this episode. Yep, when we get to it. But we kind of think of this point in 63 as having turned away from all that. And there they are. Buddy Holly in particular is interesting to me. The British were much more willing to accept the posthumous releases than the U.S. was. That has been absolutely fascinating to me as we've been going through the charts, because I honestly did not realize this. I had no idea there were so many posthumous Buddy Holly releases in England and that they did quite well on the charts. Yeah, it's interesting how much of an influence he had on the acts in England and his music, and I think that's reflected in how much he shows up on the charts, even at the points that we're looking at now. He's still a huge influence on where British music is coming from. Even though he wasn't with us anymore, he was having a bigger influence in the Everleys. To ask why the Everly Brothers sold less records, uh, you know, at a certain point in the early 60s as opposed to their initial run is sort of like asking you know, why Coke had a better week than Pepsi. These are the vagaries of, you know, marketing and, you know, what was going on in record distribution and who was getting paid off to get what record on what jukebox and to get what song on the air. Although the Everly's do have, as mentioned, a song in the charts. In the States, I think the Everly's really were kind of passe by this point, but... The Everly Brothers sold more than 35 million records and had 26 singles make the Billboard charts. 
This phenomenal success was part of a frantic and perilous journey that nearly cost Don his life. Just a few months after his drug overdose, the boys were forced to go back to work. As is frequently told to us, the British bands were still looking and listening to their American idols from the 50s. Yeah, so you really understand just how much such a length of time American rock and roll impacted British beat groups. I mean, you see it right on these charts. While the Everleys were trying to get back on their feet, the Beatles were taking the world by storm. We were coming back to England and the press had quit showing up in the, at the airport like they had in the beginning. And we came back to England in about 63 or 64, right before the Beatles hit here. And we looked and we was coming off the plane and there was the press. We said, geez, it must be have a hit or something. And the only thing they held it, what do you think of the Beatles? <laughs> you know, the grand irony was that the Beatles were certainly early on basically doing the Everly Brothers. As American audiences surrendered to the British invasion, they turned their backs on their former favorite sons, including the Everleys. They disappeared from the charts, and even their stalwart faithful began turning out in lesser numbers for their road shows. Now, Roy Orbison was not quite so much an older act. Oh, Pretty Woman was still to come. That's true, but he certainly began in that late 50s era with Sun Records and so forth. So he was of that era, but it was later when uh, he really found success. That's true. But like a couple of the others, he's one of those who is showing movement in his music. He's actually changing constantly like he always did throughout most of his career. He, he always had that need to go that next level. I don't think he was even trying purposely to do that. I think he just had this natural ability to just keep trying to go a step further. That's a really good point, Martin. In his records, he never sounded the same. One of his early hits was Ooby Dooby. He never did anything like that again. He just was constantly changing up his sound, sounding operatic at times. But then he would do something like Pretty Woman, where he did more of a rock and roll sound. He was just constantly changing it up. I think that's an excellent point. I think from footage of him and what I've read about Roy, I think it fits his nature because all the things that you hear about him and that you read about him, he's that sort of person that was incredibly humble about what talent he had. And he was very open to just talking with anybody in the industry at all. So you'd find him always being intrigued in what the new musicians were up to, what they were doing. And he took notice of what they were doing and, not really copying what they were doing, but he was being constantly inspired by these new acts that he was making friends with. Well, and Roy would also serve as the bridge from the past to the present because what was going on at this time? The Beatles were out on the road with Roy Orbison. That's right. They were on tour together. They were doing a tour of the UK and other acts on the tour included Jerry and the Pacemakers. And it was I believe Roy Orbison's first tour of the UK and the Beatles' third. I remember my first uh, tour to England came after several offers from 1960 to 1963. And I agreed to come in 1963. And uh, I didn't know who was touring with me, but uh, my fan club president uh, wrote me a letter and said, you, you will be touring with a group called the Beatles. And she said, that's terrific because they're number one in England and everyone will get to see how good you are. I think she uh, was a bit prejudiced, but at the same time, I did this tour with this group called the Beatles. They were terrific. Originally, Roy Orbison was supposed to be the headlining act, but of course, the Beatles, as we've been tracking them on the charts uh, in these episodes. The reaction to the Beatles on the tour caused them to be promoted to co-headliners, and the Beatles ended up further being promoted to closing the set in the traditional headlining spot. It's a further evidence of how they were growing in popularity. So they 
ended up being touring co-headliners. And so, as we've been talking about in many of the episodes, Roy Orbison had an impact on the Beatles in terms of their writing style and and so forth, and, and they became good friends. One of our first big tours was singing on the bill to Roy Orbison, and uh, it was pretty hard to keep up with that man. He really put on a show, you know. Well, they all did, but uh, Orbison had that fantastic voice. Ladies and gentlemen, Roy Orbison! We used to be behind the curtains and he was coming on to close the show and Roy would be right before us and he was so big. I mean, he just sat, stood there. Everybody knows who's seen him and he doesn't move, nothing, not a muscle of his face. He's even, even his mouth hardly moves. <laughs> Are you sure it was him singing? It was him. Roy even intimidated them a little bit. Paul McCartney frequently tells of standing there backstage. Roy would take it up that much more. And it's like, well, well what are we going to do? How are we going to top that? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you can only imagine with that voice that Roy had, I mean, how he would just bring down the house. And then, I mean, even though the Beatles were <laughs> the Beatles, I'm sure they thought, my God, how are we going to follow that? Well, especially after, you know, they'd kind of done the same thing to Chris Montez and Tommy Rowe, but they didn't say that. They said, oh, okay, yeah, well, fine. We're closing the show. That's our bag at this point. But Roy Orbison was something different. Exactly. So I think they probably learned a great deal from him, but as you said, were intimidated as well. And there were other things going on in the Beatles' lives this month of June of 1963, Paul McCartney turned 21. You know, <laughs> it amazes me, even though I know this, in my head I know this, like, just how young were these guys? It's incredible when you think about it. I mean, the songs that they would write that, you know, were just so far beyond their years, and yeah, they were just kids. <laughs> well, and George was 20. Yeah. <laughs> Am I allowed to quickly just point out how unbelievable it is that Paul will be 81 this year? Jeez. Unbelievable. that as well but yeah it is amazing to think about that how young they were and, and the songs they were writing and such young ages and it's it's astounding but yes the infamous 21st birthday party and it is worth mentioning here because john frequently describes it as the first time that they were significantly in the national papers for reasons that they probably have <laughs> rather not have happened, but it was a brawl between John and Bob Wooler, the DJ at the Cavern Club. I'm sure many people listening to this know at least part of the story. Well, and John even mentions it in Get Back. It's like, I don't regret anything, not even Bob Wooler, but that wasn't what he was saying at the time. Oh, no. And it's kind of, I think, debated after the event when uh, John supposedly sent the telegram to Bob Wooler apologizing and all. Who really wrote that telegram? <laughs> there was some real discussion that... Maybe this is what's going to kill it. 
It's crib death for Beatlemania. This could have been a big scandal for those who might not know. This was this party that was uh, to celebrate uh, Paul's birthday was at uh, was at Andy Jin's house, I believe. Andy Jin. We all love Andy Jin. A lot of people were at this, and uh, the foremost performed at the party, but uh, Billy J. Kramer was there, The Shadows, Jane Asher, I think, was there, and, and oh, and Cynthia, of course. I mean, you know, everybody was there. The great story about that is the foremost said, we'll play for free, then Paul insisted on paying him, and then he never paid them. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? <laughs> I should say that, but... I'm kind of not surprised. So Bob Wooler made a crack about the recent trip that John and Brian Epstein had made. And, you know, we all know that's the infamous Spanish holiday, the infamous Spanish holiday. And uh, he made a crack. I think he said something like, oh, how was your honeymoon? And John, who definitely had been overserved, as your mother says, exactly overserved, as my mother says, really didn't appreciate the comment and beat him up pretty well. The first national paper press we got was the back page of the mirror with me beating up Bob Wooler at Paul's mm. 21st. That was the first Lennon hits out story, you know. And that was the first national stuff we got. And that was terrible, you know. And I was so bad the next day, they had a BBC appointment and they all went down the train, I wouldn't come. And Brian came to the, into my house in Mendips, you know, and was pleading with me to go down there. And I was so afraid you know what what the outcome of nearly killing him because i nearly killed him because you know? i think he said something about you know he did insinuate that me and brian had had an affair in spain you know so he had, i remember it vaguely i was out of my mind to drink all you know when you get down to the point where you drink all the empty glasses that drunk and he had he was saying well come on john tell me something like that he was saying tell me about you and brian we all know like that and obviously i must have been a on uh, frightened of the fag in me to get so angry at that, you know, when you're 21, you want to be a man, all that. And it was the first time I thought, I can kill this guy, you know, I just saw, saw it like from on a screen, that if I hit him once more, I'm, that's going to be it, you know. And that's when I gave up violence, because all my life had been like that. And that's when I really got shocked, you know. The hospital stay was... Uh... Uh, something to behold, apparently. Mm-hmm. And Brian actually sat with Wooler and you know made sure that Bob would get out of it. Now, John did not join the rest of the Beatles immediately as they headed back for London after the party. And it was interesting. Billy J. Kramer, by the way, was later interviewed about this incident, and I guess he even said that John almost... Uh, went after another girl at the party that I think he probably tried to make a pass at her or something, and she rejected him. And he almost went after her. I guess Billy and another guy at the party said, okay, calm down. And Cynthia came out in tears, and they finally got him in a cab and obviously wanted to get him out of there and sober him up. It kind of makes you understand when John was to say about the the lost weekend that it really is the same thing that he'd been through during the early days. When he'd get drunk, it was not a pretty sight. And this incident was an early indication of it. And so then this incident reached the press, the part about Bob Wooler. This could have been a major scandal. John, I guess, well, supposedly John issued a, a telegram to Bob Wooler saying, I got wasted, I'm, I don't know what got into me, I'm so sorry. And he sent Bob a telegram saying, really Bob, stop terribly, worried to realize what I had done, stop, what more can I say, John Lennon. I don't know if he really wrote that. Unfortunately, the local press got hold of the story and the national newspaper, The Daily Mirror, ran it, which didn't help John Lennon's image early on. In this instance, it is believed that Brian spread around some uh, goodwill and some, uh, well, cash (laughs) to some of those reporters. And so the stories still came out, but they weren't quite as prominent as they might have been. Exactly. When you read how it came out in the press, it was kind of like, hey, everybody was drunk and, you know, it was just one of those things. You know, everybody says crazy stuff when they're drunk and, hey... Everybody's fine. Let's move on. But that wasn't all Brian was doing at the time. We're moving into the future, and you actually had foreign 
bookers coming and wanting to talk to Brian about these boys. The French trip for January of 64 was actually being booked right around this time. And the Australasian tour for the summer of the next year was being booked around these times. People actually came and were talking to Brian. There was enough of a buzz going on just in England and I guess the colonies, shall we say. It just shows you how quickly things were moving, how quickly the buzz was growing. I don't know if I've asked this before. Did they get picked up in Canada sooner than they did in the States? Ever so slightly. The records came out on Capital of Canada, but it was She Loves You that really kind of broke the Beatles and Beatlemania in Canada. So, you know, maybe a month or within a month of when things were to really get going in America. Shout out to Pierce Hemmingson. <laughs> For sure. And so once John was sure that everything was okay and he could take his head into the public circles again, he made an appearance on Jukebox Jury on June the 22nd. Unfortunately, the BBC did not keep this tape. We have an audio copy, but we don't have the video anymore. We do we do have some stills that have been taken from the TVs of John on Jukebox Jury. A lot of the records, particularly on the American side that we're going to talk about, John also talked about, we'll, we'll mention his comments, but there were a couple of records that we want to bring up here that didn't make the charts. Okay. Well, first of all, oh, do I wish that video existed of this. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great to see? I think he panned. Yeah, he panned all the records. John was still in a bad mood, I think. I think so. And I think it didn't reflect very well on him at the time. I think it was hit or miss. You know, you held up a card or something. And, you know, probably would have been better for John if if he had uh, (laughs) given just one hit. You know, rated one hit. That would have been great. But no, he was particularly vicious towards Elvis. Yes, we're going to have an Elvis song and we'll, we'll talk about John's comments on that when we get to it. Yep, absolutely. But oh, do I wish the video existed of this. So the two we want to mention, because they're not in the charts this month. The first is the click song by Miriam McKeba and the Belafonte singers. It's a Johannesburg wedding song that she's singing. Yes, and it's fascinating that this is, you know, one of the songs. It's called by the English-speaking people the click song because they cannot say Uh, Harry Belafonte, that makes sense that Harry Belafonte's singers were part of this. He was a mentor for her, brought her out of Africa and, and, you know, really was a promoter of her singing. This actually would become a hit for her, so... The panel was off. (laughs) They were really off on giving this a miss. And, of course, she would go on to become a star, I mean, practically a symbol of African music. And it's a really, you know, probably they just thought it sounded too different or something. Here's what John said. Yeah, what didn't say? It's nice, you know, not for that reason, because, you know, these foreign records... This kind of, you know, the language, it just didn't go. It's quite nice, actually, but if it was in English, it'd mean even less. <laughs> wow. Ooh. But, I mean, you know, he's, he's not trashing it too badly. He is mm-hmm. saying that it's kind of nice and that I can take it or leave it and I'll rate it a miss, but all right. <laughs> do, do you think that's a youth thing? And do you think that he would eventually, if this had been 10 or so years down the line... He might have changed slightly. Uh, he might have. Yeah, I think you're right. It is probably a youth thing. Well, I mean, again, 21 years old. Yep. Yep. The second one is also a uh, foreign record. It is Flamenco by Russ Conway. Interesting. So John's comments were, he hasn't pinched the best bits of real Spanish music, I don't think. Sorry. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. I've heard much better Flamenco. 
I'll be honest, much better Spanish music. It's not a favorite of mine either. I mean, I'll be honest. We all go with the Miss as well. Yes, we do. Yeah. We agree with John there. It's like, it's okay, great. You're doing Spanish music, but you're not doing the best of it. Right. You've heard better. I'll agree with him on that one. Yeah, the Click song is, I disagree with him on that, but yeah. The Click song, I hadn't heard it before, so I just was listening to it as I was preparing for the show. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. It really would take some getting used to, I think. Yeah, it's different. I don't dislike it, but I, I can't say that I like it. Mm-hmm. There's one other record that wasn't on the charts, but we will mention it and John's comments on it because... Well, he talks about some acts that were on the charts. The song is Don't Ever Let Me Down by Julie Grant. And what John says is, yeah, I like girl singers. I like Shirelles and Chiffons, you know? They're different. But I can't think of any girl in particular. (laughs) At the beginning, I thought, you know, oh, it's one of those with an intro. But the intro just wasn't strong enough. Hmm. Well, it actually makes a lot of sense that he'd make a comment like that because I actually did an article years ago for Beatle Fan where I talked about the intros to Beatles songs, because they did obviously think about that very much in, you know, their songs. Of course, Hard Day's Night being the obvious example, but there are many others. I mean, they did think a great deal. Well, and that goes back to the Motown thing. You got to grab them in the first 30 seconds of the song. Exactly. So, you know, that makes sense that John would make a comment like that, because they thought about that very much in their compositions. I see where you're coming from with the introduction thing because it was something that was in the Beatles that way they would always make sure that that first bit, it's almost like they knew which musical section of their songs was the bit that would be perfect for opening a song with to grab you with straight away. Unless it's, like you said, Hard Day's Night, you've got that jing and then it's straight in because that's the actual hook. So that takes us into the future and the future was starting to open up at this point. The door wasn't quite open to it but you could see the light coming through from a beatles perspective vj had put out a fairly large ad in cash box pushing for me to you well for me to you and four other british artists on vj including frank ifield (laughs) here he is again Nonetheless, Please Please Me had made a little bit of an impact on Dick Biondi, who was in Chicago at the time, and he was to move to Los Angeles, and he was to play the Beatles version of For Me to You, and it would get some recognition by you know bubbling under on the charts. It never cracked the Hot 100, but it was there, so it was in the next 15 to 20 songs. Yeah, and I'm so glad Dick Biondi gets a mention on this show. He is a legend here in Chicago. He spent the majority of his career here. And yes, indeed, he is credited as being the first to play a a Beatles record here. And yeah, it's, as you said, from me to you, didn't initially chart uh, here except the bubbling under, but he did. WLS. I mean, being in Los Angeles, that had to be at least a little bit more influential on the charts mm-hmm. than even if he managed to get some airplay in Chicago. Right, exactly. And then speaking of For Me To You, the first real international cover of a Beatles song, Del Shannon's For Me To You came out, and that would actually be the hit version of it at the time. It's funny how these things happen. You hear a certain version first, and or, or for a certain version has traction sometimes more than the original. Well, and also along those lines, the Peter, Paul, and Mary version of Blowing in the Wind shows up, and that would become a really pretty big hit. Absolutely. And I would say maybe starting to transition in a way, even though they still had that kind of a little bit of a poppier folk sound. You know, we've talked about that in previous episodes. 
I'd say, though, that's maybe the transition is starting because, of course, Bob Dylan composition. Uh, you know, we may be starting, we'll, we'll see in future episodes, to transition from that poppier folk sound into the folk sound that Bob Dylan. So, so the Dylan album had been out, oh, maybe, what, half a year to a year at this point? It came out in early to mid-62? Yeah, you know, haven't seen a lot of it on the charts. We'll see a song later in this episode that represents the poppier folk sound. Throughout a lot of the 1960s, you'll see people will take a Dylan song and they will sort of commercialise it in a sense, or they'll do their own variation of it. So, yeah, you'll find the birds eventually doing Mr. Tambourine Man and the Jimi Hendrix famous one. And even into like the 1970s when you've got, um, who was it that did the Mighty Quinn in the 1970? Manfred Mann's Earth Band with our good friend... Klaus Vorman. Ah, oh, yes, that's right. Of course. You're yeah. right. Yeah. You'll see that a lot with Dylan songs at this sort of time, up until, say, the early to mid-70s, where artists are doing this. They're picking, like, these little gems on Dylan albums and making them into something that catches the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in 69, that would be the whole thing of this tape that was going around, the Woodstock tape, it was everybody looking for what are the songs that we can pinch and restyle and turn into hits. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's that's how Manfred Mann's Earth Band got Mighty Quinnies. That wasn't actually officially released at that point. Mm-hmm. So they recorded it before an official version came out from Bob. So two more artists, one who will play a, a big role in the Beatles' lives and one who, well, is Stevie Wonder. This month is the debut of uh, Stevie Wonder, and uh, boy, did he make a splash (laughs) with the single Fingertips, which we'll talk a bit about later on in the show. But what a big debut he had. And then Doris Troy would be one of George's favorites. Just one look, that's all it took, just one. I love her version. That's my favorite. I love her voice, and and the recording is definitive for me. I don't know whether the covers are better known than her version or not. Her version is well known, even to this day. Yeah. But the Hollies... The Linda Ronstadt version, I think, may be the one that most folks would say is definitive. I don't know. Linda is one of the great voices, let's face it. Oh, no doubt about it. Absolutely. All right, so let's move on to the British charts. We start with the first week in June. June the 6th at number one was For Me to You from those guys. (laughs) Those dudes. (laughs) At number two was Billy J's Do You Want to Know a Secret? At number seven was Jerry's I Like It, so their follow-up was quickly rising the charts. Mm Mm-hmm. They're starting to become maybe not quite as huge as the Beatles. Well, it's a battle at this point in time. Yeah, that's true. They're becoming huge as well. So the Mersey beat is taking over. (laughs) At number 15 is their other single, How Do You Do It? Mm -hmm. Number 19, Roy Orbison's Falling. Great song. The two of them are on the charts and, and they're out there. That must have been a tremendous draw not just because it was the beatles but it was the beatles and roy orbison and roy orbison is here on the charts absolutely and it does also tie into the latin craze that was going on at the time this has a bit of a latin feel to it and of course i mean what can you say the vocals you hear his full range here 
it's he's incredible voice what can you say oh and the superb syncopation of the instruments where they're all sort of like doing those stabs at exactly the same moment it's just perfection He was already learning how to be producer. Although, I mean, you know, he had Sam Phillips to teach him, so. Yeah, he did. He had a good teacher. At number 24 and 35, we have Buddy Holly with Brown Eyed Handsome Man, which we have spoken of before, and his version of Bo Diddley. love this cover. I really do. I mean, I love the original, obviously, but I liked this cover a lot. I thought Buddy Holly's vocals on this nailed it. I loved the guitar. It really shows how Buddy Holly could change his voice. He could sing all different kinds of styles. I love this. In between those two songs at number 34 was Ice Cream Man by the Tornadoes. It sounds very much like all of the other Tornadoes songs, you know? Yep. You've got one section where the organ's doing this bit, then the guitar takes over, and it's got the by-the-book production and arrangement that Joe Meek was well-known for, really. Mm -hmm. We're going to see a lot of that through these records. A lot of these songs are kind of... Oh, okay. You know, we're we're just gonna do the same thing yet again because it was a hit last time. Maybe it'll catch on again. Yeah, follow the formula. number 43 was the crickets with don't try to change me i really like this song this is more of a country song it kind of shows you what the crickets could do without buddy holly and i should point out that it's co-written by doc Palmas, who wrote a lot of hits that we're going to see on both charts we spoke of doc Palmas in the last show we did yes the biggest song that most people will remember and certainly most Beatle people will remember is save the last dance for me yep but boy he was prolific in this era and this was co-written by Vinnie Poncia who would of course go on to work with Ringo Ooh, there you go mm-hmm. for Tom Onyadi who might be listening also a co-writer for songs by Kiss ah <laughs> shout out to Tom <laughs> Yep. I can't stay in one place long Just can't seem to settle down You say my life is wrong Cause I roam from town to town Don't try to change me Number 48. And this would probably be the first time that the Beatles' popularity was enough that they could bring a record back from the great beyond. There's my Bonnie. Mm-hmm. Build is Tony Sheridan and the Beatles. Yep, not the Beat Brothers. Mm. No longer. <laughs> So the next week, June the 13th, we have a lot of the same songs. For me to use at number one, I like it 
has moved all the way up to number two, taking over from Billy J. Do you want to know a secret? Falls to number three. Bo Diddley is at number 16. How Do You Do It is down to number 20. Brown Eyed Handsome Man is at number 32. And Don't Try to Change Me is at number 37. But, you know, that's still a, a significant amount of what's on the charts. Mm-hmm. And Brian Epstein must have been pretty excited. I mean, numbers one, two, and three are all his stable. <laughs> Not bad. Well, and George Martin's very happy. Yeah, and George Martin, too, of course. At number 40, It's Been Nice by the Everly Brothers. I took you out to dinner, then I took you to the show. I yeah. had a pocket full of money, and I spent all my dough. Yeah, now yeah. I see that look in your eye. Why did you put it You're nice about to say bye-bye. I don't want to hear you Why say it. Nice. It's been nice. I got a good night. Sleep tight. I got to get up very early in the morning. What do you guys think of this record? It's kind of a little bit too busy for my taste. It's okay. It's another Doc Pomus song. Right. It's not one of my favorites by the Everly Brothers. I mean, they do it well, of course. It's the Everly Brothers. Yeah, the harmony is nice. The backing and the instrumentation is just kind of a little bit busy for me. I, you know, it turns me off just ever so slightly. It's just not very memorable for me. I thought it was just me. I listened to it and I was listening to it and I just thought the backing singers and all of the arrangement that's going on in the background, it was almost getting in the way of what has always been the greatest part of the Everleys, which is their incredible vocals together. And yeah, it just got in the way for me. And I almost feel like the Everleys need a lesser background behind them so that it just carries the voices a lot more. This is something you're going to hear me say about certain other songs in this episode. And this must have been a trend of this era, overranging. There were other ones like this, the backing singers. I love strings. I love horns, you know, but there were certain times with some of these songs, whether you're talking the Everly Brothers, Tony Bennett, Ray Charles, these are voices that don't need a lot of backup. You don't need those extra elements. This is a perfect example of that. And that must have been a trend of this period to sometimes throw in everything but the kitchen sink. (laughs) We might come back to this later, Kit, because I've took notes about the Tony Bennett one. Okay, good. I think we're going to be on the same page, Martin. (laughs) I'm a huge fan of the arranger usually. But yeah, Mm -hmm. we'll get to that later. All right. At number 46 is Indian Love Call from Carl Denver. It's back to the folk trend, which we had spoken of previously. But if when you hear... Does this mean that somebody from somewhere in Europe has dropped in the Indian reservation and started doing some yodeling and trying to teach the Native Americans how to do yodeling? Well, this has been covered many, many times. It dates back to the 20s, 1924 operetta-style musical, uh, Nelson Eddy and Jeanette McDonald performed it in a film version of this musical called Rosemarie, and that was a signature song for them. Chet Atkins released a version of it, believe it or not, in 1951. Slim Whitman had a hit with this in 52. So, I mean, this has been covered umpteen times. Here, we have Carl Denver, and as we've seen in previous episodes, yodeling was hot. (laughs) We will see more of the yodeling trend. Mm-hmm. So we move on to June the 20th. For me, you has been displaced. At number one is I Like It by Jerry and the Pacemakers. Mm-hmm. They're on top now. So for me, you is at number two. Uh, if You Gotta Make a Fool Somebody by Freddie and the Dreamers is at number three. And Do You Want to Know a Secret is at number four. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's four Mersey Beat 
people in the top four then. And we're going to get one more in the charts this week. Numbers 11 and 12, we had Roy Orbison with In Dreams and Falling. At number 13, Buddy Holly's Bo Diddley. At number 19, How Do You Do It? At number 34, Leslie Gore's It's My Party. This was a simultaneous hit on both sides of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Yep, and it's a classic record, as we've talked about before. Quincy Jones producing his first big pop record. At number 37 was De Do Ron Ron. Uh, at 40 was Buddy's Brown-Eyed Handsome Man. At number 42 was Bobby Tomorrow by Bobby V. Now, that's being a little bit big-headed, don't you think? <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to sing a song with my own first name in it. <laughs> hey, if you can get away with it. <laughs> Bobby Tomorrow oh, That's what your mother would say Each time I'd call you on the phone Tomorrow, why don't you try tomorrow? I'm sure tomorrow she'll be home. Interestingly enough, the backup singers on this are the Johnny Mann singers. Johnny Mann, believe it or not, was the musical director of the Alvin Show. Yep, and <laughs> and wait, it gets better. Was the singing voice of Theodore. Listen, do-da-do, do you want to know a secret? Do-da-do, do you promise not to tell? Do-da-do, closer, do-da-do, let me whisper in your ear. Do-da-do, say the words you want to hear. I'm in love with you. And very soon, they would be doing a cover of Beatles songs. There you go. See, you didn't think there was going to be a Beatles connection here. You didn't know where I was going, but see? (laughs) Okay. We we need a bell for whenever we find connections so we can just go. (laughs) No, no, it needs to be a drinking game. There needs to be a drinking game. (laughs) (laughs) At number 43 was the crickets don't try to change me. At number 44, here's our old friend and band on the run cover guy, Kenny Lynch, with You Can Never Stop Me Loving You. You can tell the others that we're through, but darling, I know one thing you can't do, you can never stop me loving you. Never stop the way that my heart's beating to you can never stop me loving you that's one thing you never do you- it's very much almost in the bobby v mold kind of but it's better yeah. uh, you know it- i love kenny's voice on this i do too really it's a great performance the song is a little bit so-so to me. But I love his voice. Mm. It's, it's a shame that he didn't find success in America, because I do. I, he is a smooth, smooth voice. The song may not be super memorable, but I love his voice on it, though. He mm. performs it very well. That's easily the highlight of this record, is his singing. Yeah, for sure. And then at number 46, the, here's our other British Invasion act, the Swinging Blue Jeans with It's Too Late Now. That's kind of a neat little record. It's a little bit stereotypical Mersey beat. It's too late now for you to be sorry. It's too late now for you to be blue. It's too late now for you to worry. For I found somebody new. I found somebody new. You had a chance, but you misused it. It definitely sounds of its time, but that's okay. That's a compliment in this case. It's definitely of the period. And and they were a great band. You know, people say, please, please me or she loves you sounds like 1963. No, 
this sounds like 1963. Mm-hmm. Yes. We move on to the last week in June. Still at number one was I Like It. At number two was Atlantis by The Shadows. So we finally have some artists breaking into the George Martin top of the charts here. Yep. Yeah, an interloper. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Not only is it an interloper, it's one that Brian Epstein probably wasn't too happy to see. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the song's okay. It is, again, very much in the shadows mold. I love Hank Marvin's tone on this. When you compare it to what I've heard before, like Apache, I think it's got a more trebly tone to it, but it just sounds a lot brighter and it really jumps out in the song a lot more than earlier. It's like their production has changed slightly. Not too much, but the song still sounds like something that the Shadows would do and obviously that they did do. Yeah, they have such a distinctive sound. I mean, you just immediately, when the song starts, you're like, yep, that's the Shadows. Okay, at number three was If You Gotta Make a Fool of Somebody. Number four was For Me to You, so it's fallen all the way to number four here. Uh-oh. Are we going to see these guys again? I don't know. what What's what's going on here? The suspense is killing me. Yeah, <laughs> fly-by nights. <laughs> at number six is Bo Diddley. At number seven is Billy J's Do You Want to Know a Secret? At number nine is Falling. At 13 is In Dreams. Debuting at number 23, we were saying, oh, look at For Me to You and debuting at number 22. So I guess the Beatles still had the advantage. They debuted one higher than this artist. And the man is Frank Ifield with Confessing. He's confessing to being one behind. (laughs) Now here's a yodeling track for you. Absolutely. If you do, you know you'll grieve me for all in life. That you really love me Dreaming dreams of you in vain I'm confessing that I love you over again That was his thing. He could really show off his yodeling skills here. But interesting background on this song dates back to like 1929. It was first produced with different lyrics as looking for another sweetie and was recorded by Fats Waller. Looking for another sweetie Someone I can call my own If that certain one would meet me I'd take her back home Home, home Just a little kiss from you, dear Promise me that you'll be true for everybody else, I miss looking And then, in 1930, it was reborn as Confessin' with new lyrics, and Louis Armstrong mm. recorded it and made a highly influential recording of it because instead of delivering it straight, he used scat in it. And of course, as you know, you know Louis Armstrong was you know, a pioneer. I mean, practically invented scat. I'm confessing that I love you. Tell me, do you love me too? I'm confessing that I need you. Honest, I do. Oh, baby. So it ended up being a you know really significant recording. I think Fra- Frank Ifield's uh, take on it is quite different <laughs> than Louis Armstrong's. But anyway, this has a long, uh, long history to it. This song. right. Well, this is going to be very telling. The Louis Armstrong version I have heard a few times. I love mm-hmm. you, Louis. Absolutely. I actually switched Frank's off after about a minute. <laughs> You just couldn't take it, huh? 
The yodeling wasn't your thing, huh? I've got by most of Frank's yodeling up until now, but that was just overload. It's like you're trapped under the ice, unable to get out <laughs> while you've got like 300 yodelers around you. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I don't know if it's quite that bad, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> At number 27 was How Do You Do It? At number 42 was Brown Eye Handsome Man. At number 44 was It's Too Late Now. At number 48, here's our friend Joe Brown Yay. with Nature's Time for Love. For a time is nature's time for love. When she is feeling blue. That's the time to lay her head upon his shoulder When she's feeling lonely too Then his arms should go around her tight and hold her But oh, when a big blue moon is hanging in the sky But then your heart should miss a beat Then his lips and her should meet this is a nice song. Mm-hmm. And that is a really nice guitar sound, and it's playing some beautiful guitar lines. Yep, what a guitarist he is. I mean, he really is. And, of course, great vocals, too. He's harmonizing himself, I think, on this. I think you're right, yes. And then at number 49, yet another in the up-and-coming British Invasion bands, Sweets for My Sweet by The Searchers. Their debut single, I believe. If you want to, let's start a chance so brightly To match the stardust in your eye Darling, I would chase that bright star nightly And try to steal it from the sky And I would bring sweets for my sweet sugar That's a classic over here, that is. Is it a classic in America? It's not quite a classic, but it, it got some recognition here. Yeah. See, whenever I think of the searchers, I think needles and pins. Yeah. 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 They were actually to be on Pop Go the Beatles. And there's a story about Paul McCartney trying to recruit them to Brian Epstein and Nims. This was really interesting. And. They decided not to because they said they didn't want a manager who wouldn't regard them as being the top act, you know, that they didn't want to be considered way down the line from the Beatles. So they didn't, and safe to say they regretted that decision. Before he passed, Brian Epstein would say in 1967, if I could retrace my footsteps and add just one more Liverpool group to my list of recording artists, I would choose to have the searchers on my books. They were good. They were. I mean, they had a terrific sound. And the Beatles had a great regard for them. I remember, I think it was, oh, I'm trying to remember, I, I, it was some interview they did. Nick Schaffner mentions it, that the Searchers were the Beatles' favorite Merseyside band. Yeah, and yeah, they were asked who they liked, and I remember John Lennon saying, there was, like, I don't know if it was a press conference or what it was, and he said, the Searchers and the Rolling Stones. I remember that. Well, and Paul even tried to sweeten the deal by offering them things we said today. Yeah, that's right. That would have been interesting. I think they could have handled that song. They could have pulled it off. Yeah. I don't know what would have happened. There is no doubt that Brian always put the Beatles number one. And that's true. Had they signed with them, who knows? So we also need to say that it didn't help the searcher's career any by not signing up with Brian. Yep. Had they signed up, had they done things we said today, that would have been a worldwide smash, I think. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Okay, I just found the quote. When Sweets for My Sweet came out, John Lennon called it the best disc ever by a Liverpool group at the time. So that's pretty high praise. I mean, this is the guy that voted thumbs down to every song on Jukebox Jury. <laughs> what they did to a Drifter song, this is a really great version. Yeah, I mean, they really took it in another direction, and yeah, it sounds great. 
It's a lovely production on it. As is becoming our tradition, we're going to end side A here, and we will be back very soon with side B, the American charts. Take care. See you soon. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records. Remember when Top Rank had a record label? They introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermos. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that. They must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror, as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought, how stupid that is. How stupid is is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.